This spring, L.L. Bean wants to help you feel great out there with gear, tips, and advice for heading outdoors and exploring all the possibilities of the season. Here's a simple tip to help you stick to your goals for the new year. Take a walk outside. In one study, researchers found that just an hour spent walking in nature improved participants' attention spans and memory by 20%. If you're having trouble focusing, some time outside could be the answer. For more fun ideas, easy how-tos, and inspiring stories, visit llbean.com guide. Great Smoky Mountains National Park is stunning in the early fall. Summer temperatures taper off and cooler weather starts to arrive as the leaves begin to turn vibrant shades of red, yellow, and orange. Morning fog rises up through the mountains of the Cataloochee Valley, located in a more remote and high altitude area of the park. The early hours of the day this time of year are peaceful, ambient, and calm. But the quietness won't last long. Eventually, the peaceful stillness will be broken by a low-frequency vocalization that starts as a hum and builds up to a high-pitched scream held for several seconds, followed by a series of loud, sharp, sharp grunts. The vocalizations will continue to echo through the landscape as more and more of them join together in a call-and-response chorus. It's jarring to hear for the first time, but park rangers and frequent visitors are all too familiar with the call of an elk bugle. Elk bugles are unique vocalizations emitted by male elk during the breeding season. It's distinctive and unmistakable to those who have heard it before. It was once a sound that could be heard from late August to early November throughout the United States, from coniferous forests to semi-desert habitats. Though certain physical characteristics varied throughout the range, elk were once bountiful from the east coast to the west. The species consisted of several different subspecies, and they numbered in the millions, once the continent's most widely distributed member of the deer family. But European colonization would change all that, and conservation managers in the 20th and 21st centuries would be left picking up the pieces trying to revive an animal that was almost lost from our national parks altogether. I'm Jason Epperson, and on today's episode of America's National Parks, the comeback story of North American elk. When they first laid eyes on elk in North America, European settlers confused the animal they saw with the moose they were familiar with in Europe. They therefore named the species elk, a word often used for moose in Europe. But elk already had a name. The Shawnees shared the landscape with them far before the Europeans arrived and called them wapiti, meaning white-rimmed deer. Males, called bulls, weigh around 700 pounds but can reach up to 1,200. Females, called cows, weigh about 500 pounds and give birth to calves that weigh about 30. 
Though well known for their large antlers measuring under six feet wide, bulls lose their antlers every March and April, with new growth beginning soon after. The result is a pair of fuzzy-looking antlers covered in a layer of skin that deposits calcium via blood vessels in what's referred to as velvet. Although not common, females can also grow antlers. Antlers can grow up to an inch a day, and males typically start to scrape the velvet off in early August to get ready for the breeding season in the fall. This is when you'll hear the species' iconic loud bugle in an effort to establish dominance and attract a mate. Settlers knew that elk were valuable. They could provide large amounts of lean meat for eating and rich hides for warmth and leather making, but their desirability took a huge toll on the species. By the late 1700s, there were no more elk in North Carolina, and the species was wiped out in Indiana by 1840. Elk met their demise in Kentucky and Illinois in the 1850s, Tennessee in 65, and Wisconsin in the 1880s, with several states following suit. By the early 1900s, a mere 40,000 elk remained, restricted to remnant herds in the Rocky Mountains, Pacific Northwest, and Canada. Some subspecies fared a little better than others. The tule elk in California hung on with a single herd consisting of 30 individuals in the 1870s, but the eastern elk went extinct when the last individual was shot in Pennsylvania in 1877. Similarly, the Merriam's elk of the southwestern United States was driven extinct in 1906. Elk needed help, and fast. Thankfully, habit restoration efforts and hunting regulations were put into place relatively quickly in a few select areas. Elk were able to bounce back and eventually reach numbers that prompted the possibility of reintroduction efforts in the early 1900s. It was postulated that elk in successful populations could be used to reestablish dwindling or altogether extirpated herds in the other parts of the U.S. Some reintroduction projects ran smoothly. Elk were welcomed to the area and management entities were successful in their reintroduction endeavors. Others went not so smoothly. The state of Wyoming was the primary source of elk being translocated and reintroduced throughout their historical range. Colorado imported 50 from Wyoming in 1916 and released them in Idaho Springs and the Greenhorn Mountains. In 1914, 14 elk were taken from Jackson Hole, Wyoming and relocated into Wind Cave National Park in South Dakota. Between 1913 and 1928, 303 elk were transferred from Yellowstone National Park to Grand Canyon. Similar efforts were occurring on the eastern side of the country. Pennsylvania bought 50 elk from Wyoming in 1913 for $30 each, and an additional 95 were purchased two years later. The elk were brought in by train and chased out of their respective boxcars into the wilderness. This hard-release approach may not have achieved desired results had it not been for what would become the crux of elk management in the state, Pennsylvania's ample farmland. The agricultural industry provided a seemingly endless supply of food for elk. Conflicts between farmers, elk, and the Pennsylvania Game Commission quickly erupted. Problem elk, or elk that repeatedly destroyed agricultural land, were identified and farmers demanded that they be compensated for their losses, a request the state ultimately denied. Tensions finally began to cool when Pennsylvania allowed the hunting of bulls in 1923. But as had happened before, elk numbers dwindled, and hunting in Pennsylvania ceased in 1931. 
elk management would shift and adapt as needed as the 20th century progressed. As a result, reintroduced elk herds were starting to become more and more successful. Tool elk were brought back to Tamales Point in California in 1978 when 10 individuals were transplanted from a herd in the San Luis National Wildlife Refuge. The reintroduction of this herd was a huge success, and 28 of them were released at Point Reyes just 20 years later in 1998. Western states started donating elk to Kentucky in 1997. By the end of initial efforts, 1,500 were reintroduced into the state, and an area along the Tennessee-Kentucky border was able to move 25 of their elk in 2001 and 27 the following year to Great Smoky Mountains National Park bringing back a once iconic species that is now an attraction staple. Successful reintroduction efforts didn't come without headaches. Reports of elk doing a little too well started trickling in by the early 1990s. Populations in some areas reached a point where the environments they lived in could no longer support them. This caused the collapse of vegetative communities, which in turn impacted the other species dependent on them. The elk herd at Tamales Point tipped the scales of carrying capacity, necessitating park staff to come up with a solution. A four-year experiment involving the use of contraceptives was the first attempt, which largely worked. The herd now swings back and forth in population size, appearing to self-regulate as years of low waterfall and low-quality vegetation naturally reduced numbers. The high availability of natural resources, coupled with a lack of predators in Rocky Mountain National Park, meant that elk no longer had to seasonally migrate. This led to the heavy and unsustainable use of land in concentrated areas. It was clear by 1994 that a management plan would be needed to address the issue. At different points in time, Rocky Mountain staff had to put up temporary fences to give plants time to recuperate, translocated elk, and culled them an unfortunate but sometimes necessary practice in the world of wildlife management. Current plans run through 2028 with the goal of achieving an elk population of 600 to 800. At present, the population is still considered too large to be naturally supported. In Yellowstone, elk are the most abundant large mammal in the park. Six to seven herds are comprised of 10,000 to 20,000 elk at any given time. They call the higher elevations of the park home during the summer dominating areas like Cascade Meadows and Madison Canyon. The elk population in Yellowstone is particularly interesting because conservation managers there also had to deal with the secondary consequences of an ill-guided management decision made at the beginning of elk reintroduction efforts, the extirpation of their natural predators. Initially, the expected success of elk reintroduction programs was pretty low. Managers wanted to give elk every advantage they could, including the removal of predators. This led to a drastic decrease in species like the gray wolf and grizzly bear. The loss of predators from an ecosystem can have catastrophic consequences because they sit at the top of the food chain. Yellowstone didn't have wolves for 70 years until 1995 when 31 were released in the park. Grizzly bears, black bears, and coyotes managed to stick around in Yellowstone through the 1900s, and at the time they were responsible for most elk mortality events in the area, 90% of which involved calves. The reintroduction of wolves prompted the question, could the elk successfully adapt to the increase in predation pressure? Turns out they did just fine. They simply started to spend their time in forested habitats at higher elevations in the summer. Forested sites that had been burned in the park's 1988 fires were 
preferentially selected because they provided protection via the presence of fallen logs and barriers to movement that would slow wolves from taking them down as prey. The burnt forest also contained a herbaceous understory that elk could forage upon, ensuring their energy needs were also met. Alternatively, in winter, elk in Yellowstone National Park started to select more open habitats and adopted anti-predator strategies such as grouping. Grouping not only managed risk, but also heightened wolf detection abilities, giving elk a leg up and gaining ground to avoid becoming a meal. Elk and their natural predators now function in their respective ecosystems, working toward a balance that allows the surrounding environment to thrive. It's hard to believe that elk were altogether absent from most of these landscapes just over 100 years ago. Overall, it's estimated that elk make up 85% of wolf kills in the winter and provide sustenance to bears and mountain lions, as well as the species that scavenge for leftovers, like the bald eagle and coyote. Elk also impact landscapes via the consumption of vegetation and deposit of nitrogen, which influences plant diversity, soil fertility, and vegetation growth. In addition to benefiting nature, elk also greatly contribute to local economies. Elk restoration in Kentucky has been credited with revitalizing the eastern half of the state. Elk bring in visitors and visitors bring in business, including restaurants, supporting goods stores, and hotels. In a somewhat ironic fashion, the same Kentucky coal mines that destroyed elk habitat when active now serve as idyllic habitat for the species in their abandoned condition. The North American elk population is now estimated to consist of over 1 million individuals. What state currently has the most? It's Colorado, in at 280,000 and the largest continuous elk population in the world. We'll be back in a moment, but first, a quick break for a message from our favorite place to search for the best campground for your national park adventures, Campendium. Campendium lists virtually every campground in North America and every type of campsite you can imagine. From remote backcountry tent sites to RV parks with water slides and pickleball courts, you can search by price, including free or by cell service, elevation, whether pets are allowed. Dozens of different search filters will bring you detailed user reviews so you can find the best campsite for your trip. Campendium is free at campendium.com or on the app, and you can upgrade to a RoadPass Pro membership to unlock an ad-free experience with more detailed cell service reports, public land map overlays, trail maps, and more. A RoadPass Pro membership also includes other premium apps like Togo RV and Road Trippers. Visit Campendium.com or download the app today and save $10 off a RoadPass Pro membership with code RVMILES10X. Though doing well throughout their range in North America and arguably a true success story, threats on the horizon loom. Like most wildlife in the U.S., elk herd have a number of challenges that threaten their persistence. From climate change to disease, elk are constantly having to adapt. For example, chronic wasting disease, or CWD for short, is a fatal disease that affects the brain, spinal cord, and other bodily tissues of multiple species of the deer family. It develops slowly, taking nearly a year for symptoms to show. Elk can spread CWD via contact with contaminated bodily fluids and tissue or through exposure to it in water or food. 
the prevalence of CWD in Wind Cave National Park reached a fever pitch in 2016, necessitating that nearly half of the elk population be culled and tested for the presence of the disease. CWD can also be found in deer, moose, reindeer, and sika deer, and has been identified in the US, Canada, Norway, and South Korea. South Korea even took the measure of banning the import of elk horn in 2002. Elk are also at risk for many of the same diseases that impact livestock due to their biological similarities. Paratuberculosis is infectious and incurable. The late onset of symptoms coupled with the difficulty in testing for its presence makes it especially challenging to monitor. Elk herds at Point Reyes have tested positive for the pathogen, but its prevalence and incidence rate are unknown due to the propensity of false negatives and positives that occur during testing. More common and intense weather events are also a threat to elk. Incidents like droughts and wildfires can impact entire ecosystems, making it difficult to predict how species will react and what support they'll need. For example, droughts in 21 and 22 required the National Park Service to provide supplemental water and mineral licks to elk in Tamales Point via a series of seven water tanks and troughs. But what's the impact of drought on vegetation? Will there be enough for elk to eat? These are all complicated questions conservation managers can only predict answers for. In a way you might not expect, hunting pressure may also threaten elk. Regulated hunting has provided countless benefits to elk on public lands. It funds conservation efforts and helps control populations that can no longer be supported by their surrounding habitat. But elk are smarter than we give them credit for. A 2022 study found that elk in central Utah moved off of public land where hunting is permitted to private land where hunting was not allowed during the hunting season. Seeking refuge from hunters protects elk at an individual level, but puts the efficiency of management strategies that depend on hunter harvest meant to protect the species as a whole at risk. The degree of adaptability and survivability that elk have shown in the last 100 years speaks testament to the pure grit of the species. It means that conservation managers have to stay on their toes in making decisions aimed at protecting elk and the habitats they live in. Though never quite out of the woods, so to speak, elk bugles will hopefully be heard in the Smoky Mountains and across other national parks in the United States for years to come. This episode of America's National Parks was written by Dr. Charlotte Hacker. Peter Shen is the author of our theme music and our audio editor, and I'm your host, Jason Epperson. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving us a rating and a review. If you're new here, make sure to subscribe to the podcast to get new episodes delivered to your feed. If you're looking for photos and tips about visiting national parks, check out our America's National Parks Facebook group. And if you're interested in RV travel, we hope you'll also check out our RV Miles podcast and YouTube channel. Today's show was sponsored by L.L. Bean. Follow the hashtag BeAnOutsider and visit LLBean.com to find great gear for exploring our national parks. And by Campendium. Find listings and reviews for thousands of campsites for your next national park adventure at Campendium.com.